0: Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now, introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann, and today we're very lucky to be joined by Noel Murphy. How you doing, Noel? Hey, how's it going? It's very good. Very good. And uh, speaking off air, the was it fourteen meetings that you've had today, and now you've signed yourself up for a podcast, so uh, (laughs) plenty more talking.
0: Very much so. As a partially professional extrovert and also a partially professional pessimist, uh, those two things can be combined in the S three role. I find uh, I have started going to a lot of meetings in the recent past. So,
1: well, yeah, we definitely have to talk about that. Um, would, Would you mind, for the audience, giving a little introduction about yourself?
0: Uh, sure so uh, I guess in terms of what uh, got me into computers at the at the start uh, I really imprinted uh, on kind of Tom Baker era Doctor Who in the 1970s um, I guess that wave of sci-fi that came with Star Wars and Doctor Who and so on I was definitely influenced by from a very early age I can remember my mother uh, I'm a child of a a single mother. My mother would bring home and uh, the magazines of you know the PC Worlds and the Tomorrow's Worlds and so on of the day, and I would leaf through them. Uh, we weren't weren't actually able to afford any kind of computing technology apart from the wooden Atari twenty six hundred until I was about ten, I think, and that was an Amstrad CPC four six four, the very first computer I got. And uh, I did all of that kind of typing in from listings thing that you do when you're a child of the eighties. And, uh, it was all good.
1: Very cool. And then, and what, so did you then start off then in like a developer role when you left uni or kind of out of school?
0: Uh, no, uh, the, uh, the career, the progress of my, my career was, uh, a little interesting in some ways. So, um, I was, the way it works in Ireland is you do a terminal exam, which is called the leaving certificate. And it's a very market-based system. It's very fair in some ways, very unfair in other ways. But the way in which it is fair is the number of uh, marks you get in each of the seven subjects that you do are totted up. And that mark is compared to the marks which are allocated to, or the threshold levels which are allocated to the subject's. Uh, uh, the course is advertised by the universities in general. And what the universities do is that if they have a lot of places in one particular course, the points for it go down so that they can allow more people to join. And if there are a small number of places, the points are usually high, et cetera. And then there's some market distortions where, uh, you know, everyone wants to be a doctor and a lawyer. And uh, the particular year that I went into uni, I was going back and forth on whether I would do philosophy in English or uh, computer science and mathematics. And I ended up picking computer science and mathematics. Uh, and uh, when I was in university, I did. I had a very strong practical orientation. I really wanted to be using the machine and getting it to do real things uh, from very early on. But the uh, I, I later came to discover that the department that I went to at the time had a very strong theoretical orientation. And so the first year had a lot of formal derivation uh, kind of stuff in it and not that much practical orientation. So I kind of fell out of love with the uh, the department, at least for a while. Uh, but I did start the University College Dublin Internet Society when I was there in the 90s. Uh, which actually ended up giving uh, internet service and a shell account as was then to at I think its height about 2,000, 3, 2,500, 3,000 students. Uh, we were essentially doing computing services job for them <laughs> across, uh, across a, a committee of system administrators and uh, who were all students and uh, uh, one very big box. Uh, so my career started relatively early on in the sense that I was actually working in university uh, as a computing person and not being paid for it for a while. I was and then, for free. <laughs> yeah, And then I was working as a computing person in university for a while and getting paid for it. And then... Um, I actually wrote a, a history of the Irish internet, uh, which is at www.internethistory.ie, if I recall. But one of the first jobs that I actually had was a thing called a programmer hostmaster. Ooh. And a programmer hostmaster, as well as being a job title which uh, no one in the world has heard of, uh, is a way of mapping uh, in a programmatic way or Uh, As a software developer, one works on DNS and one is registering domain names for the uh, root name service in Ireland, which at that time was co-located with the university, and later split out. But I had a role, uh, sorry, I had a series of roles in um, internet infrastructure companies, often at the intersection of... Uh, Automation and System Administration, or Automation and Network Engineering, uh, which is what I did in Amazon uh, in the very early days when Amazon's Dublin office was was opened. And then in about 2006, uh, I joined Google, where I spent 11 years. uh, And in the very recent past couple of months, I joined Microsoft as their Director of Cloud Engineering and Site Reliability Engineering.
1: That is a very, very nice, like, you know, rich history for sure.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I don't regret a single minute of it, uh, even though a lot of it has been extremely intense. And someday, someday I suspect I'll need to get my adrenaline bands replaced. But I'm very <laughs> much do <into laughs> oh, it. Man. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Very
1: interesting. Uh, and I think you touched upon it a little bit earlier, actually. One of the reasons why i having you on, you know, is the fact that you helped co-author the, the SRE book. Personally, for me, you know, SRE is a very new role, very interesting new role. And uh, it's typically been, uh, you know, I can kind of look at it from a bird's eye view and typically how as a developer would see it, you've got developer ops friction. And there's always been this thing where, you know, developers, we want innovation. We want new features. We want to be able to, you know, release stuff when we want. We want to see change. And ops want things to just, you know, work. They they don't want to happy because they'll be the ones that have to wake up, you know, early morning or they at least, you know, have to try and change or fix these things, mitigate these things until a developer can actually get around to it. Or, you know, what ends up happening is really the ops team ends up having to maintain this code years and years after the developers come along so you get this kind of friction ops wants to keep things the same dev wants to move things and how do we kind of get around that and there's this new role you know this kind of new movement essentially site reliability engineering i was just wondering maybe you know kind of would you mind explaining to the audience and, and to me actually you know what this role is how it came to be and really what the philosophy behind it is
0: yeah, so there's uh there's a couple lectures worth of material in this and we could probably spend the next couple of days talking about it. but in general I I I think the way I'll start is that I'll say operations is terrible by which I mean we have been trying to operate things as a species for millennia there's actually a piece in a paper I co-wrote with Liz Fong Jones about the relationship between DevOps and SRE, which talks at the start about this, like we have, uh, as a species, been trying to operate things well for ages. But in the IT realm, the act of trying to operate things effectively, particularly in the case where you have what I'll call a hard stack split... When you look at the stack ranging from the full stack, before that meant four kinds of JavaScript, when you talk about hardware all the way up to user facing JavaScript going through, you know, device drivers, kernel, libc, uh, middleware, other kind of cloud layers of stuff and application layers, and then the say user facing JavaScript. What you have in the development and operations world is a hard split somewhere around libc where the system administrator knows about command-level things to run typically and is responsible for the health of a box and is not really responsible for the success of the application on the box or, more accurately, is responsible for the success of the application on the box but is not equipped to actually do anything about it, you have actively unaligned incentives. And that hard split in responsibility, in capability, in vocabulary, in parity of esteem, in everything really means that as a, as a kind of a holistic unit, that setup for actually delivering code to production is basically non-functional. So in the extreme, it ends up with. Uh, teams unable to talk to each other, no respect for each other whatsoever, lo- all kinds of finger-pointing, nobody really saying or, uh, what's actually happening, no one has the holistic picture in mind, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there are a couple of possible responses to this, and the DevOps movement, uh, which you have talked about previously, is one of them. And the SRE, I guess, movement doesn't really feel like the quite the right word to me, but the SRE role, perhaps? One of the things that uh, we've been working on recently is a illustration of how you might compare and contrast DevOps and SRE. And DevOps in this overall framework is a kind of philosophy, which is really business oriented. And it's talking about, okay, in your business, you have some technical underpinning to the business. That's certainly true. And we want to make that business move faster. And so we tend to to find DevOps folks orienting around continuous delivery and uh, continuous integration type systems. But it's really a much larger philosophy about how you should organize your business. Now, weirdly enough, DevOps folks, despite having ops in the title, the philosophy of DevOps is relatively unopinionated about how operations should be conducted. When you look at the SRE book, you don't see a lot of philosophy about how your business is or how breaking down silos is valuable. Yes, it's there. I mean, it's in some ways a basic assumption that the business is working on a useful level already, which often requires breaking down silos and effective communication and a bunch of other things. But the SRE body of practice is an opinionated body of practice about how operations should be conducted, and that is its main difference between SRE as a role and DevOps as a philosophy. Interesting. And, and what what
1: drew you then to SRE? Like, when were you first introduced to it?
0: So uh, <laughs> again, my my career in in Google was a fairly fast moving career. Uh, day one, I turned up, and the person that had said I would report to on my contract, I was reporting to somebody else. Within three months, I had changed desk twice, teams twice, and location once. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, I was introduced to SRE relatively early on. uh, But ironically, uh, my group didn't receive the same SRE training that a lot of the other SREs in Google did at that time. So we kind of had to make a lot of that stuff up for ourselves or, or learn a lot of that for ourselves. But I started off as a system administrator in the SysOps group in Google Dublin in November 2006. And by about spring 2007, we were in an SRE team that was looking after a variety of, uh, some of them internal applications, uh, but actually a number of them also being externally facing applications. So we were doing the SRE thing from relatively early on. Google itself, of course, didn't invent the SRE Thing uh, then it had started it a couple of years earlier. Part of the reason it had started an SRE group as opposed to organising things with, for example, the uh, development and operations split we were referencing earlier, is because there was a huge ideological reluctance inside Google to construct a job role which would be which would be there primarily to follow playbooks and the the view very much was that if a play if a playbook could be constructed and could be followed by a human being, there was a piece of software that should be written for it. That is definitely to develop a way, isn't it?
1: You know, if I'm gonna have to do this a couple of times, I need to write a script of, you know, do it for me.
0: And like I say ideological, and I say ideological because I mean that it is followed to the extreme even when it is not of value, as well as those cases when it is value. For example, there would be many operations that Google folks would not be able to uh, conduct in a programmatic way uh, for various reasons, like maybe even there isn't just the time to write the software required to do it. And those operations would end up undone because there wouldn't be a piece of software you could write in time to do it. Other companies would hire a vendor or they would like, pay somebody to do it, but not in Google. So what, what kept you with the role
1: there? Because you know, what, what, obviously, you, know, you said that you kind of flung around a little bit and then you kind of landed in the SRE role. The mix and the blend of all the different things that you know, come about from doing that role, is there, was that the things that really kind of got you, you know, that kept you hooked to it?
0: Well, some of it's partially Google and some of it's partially the role. Um, Google, of course, planet spanning systems, lots of tech running around. It's a place that's very hard to be bored in. Uh, you do, you can get unlucky, and there are definitely people who have been dissatisfied by their Google experience, and that's totally fine. But for a large number of years, the technical challenges that I were that I was dealing with, I was growing all the time, and this is the era, I guess, the two thousand six to two thousand sixteen era had so much happening in it that Google ended up being centrally involved in. If you think about, yes, the search engine, yes, Gmail, yes, Android the phenomenal growth of ads, products, Google+, Plus, all of that kind of stuff. There's just a lot going on. And the role itself, as opposed to the company in which it happened to be conducted, the role itself is also a fascinating hybrid role because not only do you you essentially have to be better than either product developers or operations staff at the things that they both specialize in, you also had you also develop a, a very interesting feeling for intuition, I should say, for architectures that will work and architectures that will maybe work less effectively. and you migrate, I guess at one end of the spectrum towards being um, a systems architect, except to a certain extent that's a dirty word in Google Sre because. Seriously, architects in the outside world have a kind of a whiteboard style reputation. Like you go into the office and you ask the architect how to do something and the architect will draw up this diagram on the whiteboard and you'll stare at it and you go, thank you very much. And then you'll try and implement it and you'll find out it won't work. And the difficulty there, and this is where it matches with my own personal preferences, is that SRE is a very strongly practical and pragmatic role. And if the thing doesn't work, like I don't really care what the theory says.
1: So, so where is an SRE actually then positioned within a group
0: then? Uh, so it it depends. And again, uh, I do want to distinguish as carefully as possible between the implementation that Google uh, happens to have done, which is obviously seminal and lots of documented material about and so on and so forth, but also what other people do in reaction to the traditional developer operations split. Uh, sometimes those things overlap uh, and sometimes they they do that less so. For example, I know that in Facebook, they have a strong, maybe preference is the wrong word, but they do a lot of embedded SRE, they call it production engineering work, where uh, a number of people, a small number of people will come and sit with the developer team help them to learn about production technologies. Maybe there's some particular launch they need help with over a kind of a quarter, a couple of quarters timeframe. And basically the person becomes one of that team for the duration. And then they're rotated out and they do something else. Whereas in Google, the usual strong preference is for a team of SREs who are bound to a product and sometimes a set of products, depending on various factors we'll get into. And that team versus embedded model, uh, people are doing basically the same work, i.e. wrestling with the complexity of production in one way or another, but they can do it in different organizational contexts.
1: So I thought it'd be really interesting, actually, maybe to go into some of the ideas that kind of compose to become this SRE role. Uh, And one of the big ones is the, the concept of an SLA. Would you mind explaining to the audience what an SLA is?
0: Yeah, so SLA stands for service level agreement. Actually, the slightly more fundamental concept underneath that is a service level objective, which SLO, which itself relies on SLIs, which are service level indicators. Uh, All of these are fancy ways of saying uh, there's some number attached to some performance or attribute or et cetera of the system. And we want that number to be at a particular threshold. Like that's almost always what it ends up being like. Uh, An example is for a web-based user-facing serving system of some kind, you generally want the system to respond within a reasonable length of time and usually reasonable, uh, you can actually get quite detailed assessments of the precise delay that a human being will interpret as a system being non-responsive and so on. So there is quite a lot of prior art on this. But basically, you have an SLA of we want 99 point something percent of queries to be responded to within 50 MS or something like that. And that is some target that the system that we've decided on a business level that the system should make. And that target, if we fall beneath it, we take actions to correct it. And if we're above it, we're all hunky dory and that's fine. Now, this is a business decision, right? And so many business people listening to this would say, well, why shouldn't I pick a target of like 100% because like, I want my thing to be up all the time? The ideal world. In the ideal world. And actually, there's loads of reasons why that isn't the right target. And some of them are quite subtle. The first reason is that if you look at the reliability of typical consumer equipment, and we will locate this response in the context, in the business context of typical consumer web services for the moment. But if you look at the reliability of those systems, you find out that actually more or less everything in somebody's house that's allowing them to browse the web has a reliability of less than 100%. So if you look at... The reliability of an upstream DSL provider, or your local Wi-Fi, or your phone, or so many connections, so many, so many factors, so many factors, so many ways for them to go wrong. If you were a, a pessimistic example, way, yeah, <laughs> professional pessimist. So, if you look at the effort you have to go to to maintain one hundred percent uptime brackets, and by the way, you never will close brackets. It turns out that even if you did that, the typical consumer wouldn't see any difference
1: to have that kind of wiggle room into realization that, yes, we're going through so many hops, things are going to happen outside of our control, that you know, no matter how hard we try, things are going to go wrong.
0: And another reason is that if you do set a target of 100%, the team that you set that target for are necessarily going to be able to do nothing other than react. Because as soon as something goes wrong, their target will have been breached and they must react immediately. So you are condemning those teams to an immediately reactive existence. And it turns out that if you do that, you might think you're doing the right thing because, hey, those, that team is going to react and that's good because they're going to attack the problem immediately. But actually, it's much better if you don't do that and if you give them the guaranteed 50% project work time up front In order to engineer systems that will not go down in that way and have to be reacted to at all in the first place. And that's another key component of the SRE role, which distinguishes it from how other roles, I guess, do engineering operations. We have this hard split precisely because engineering is the magic. Engineering is where we actually get the systems to behave differently and to actually uh, be better in terms of software operability which is a key thing
1: so you mentioned there the the SLIs the indicators and you know reporting obviously then is a massive part you know of this I've been able to produce an SLA and then actually to abide by that and to live by that so I'm just wondering how do you decide on what these SLAs and what these SLIs etc actually will be and and how do you go about monitoring them?
0: Yeah, so there's uh there's a lot of material here again. I guess one of the things we know, again I'll I'll locate this in the overall context of kind of user-facing web services, although there are similar arguments that apply in different contexts like transactional or big data or machine learning or so on. But usually in web services there are there's some pretty good data showing that if you slow down your web service deliberately, You can watch the users essentially peel away until in the event, in the limit, as you have infinite latency, you don't have any users. So you can more or less turn that knob or slider back and forth and watch the users come back on and fall back off. Now, actually, you don't want to do that because there's significant evidence to suggest that if you turn the knob too far to the the slow end of things, you lose some of those users and they never come back. Now, that is a factor for something which is, say, a much more like a transactional short post and get a a small amount of data back, like a search engine kind of query for things which are a bit more specialized, like maybe the average user would be a bit more sticky, etc. And it also depends on the business domain that you're in. But basically, it is possible to draw a kind of a 2D graph which shows that as latency goes up, and as other negative factors increase, you can watch your user your user base fall away. And so if you show this graph to your business leaders and you say, look, here, and typically that number is somewhere between, we'll say, three nines and five nines. And by that, I mean 99.9% available or 99.99% available. You draw that line somewhere. And when you draw drawn that line, you have a rather wonderful thing, which is a thing called an error budget. And an error budget is one minus the 99999 or whatever it is. And that is the amount by which you're allowed to fail. Why is an amount that you're allowed to fail a great thing? It's a fantastic thing because it is an objective way of saying to a dev team or to a business leader or whatever. Here is the amount by which we have agreed we can engage in risky behavior. And we're embracing the fact that failure happens
1: and not trying to just kind of like hide it. And I think that's where, you know, typical devot roles. And, you know, we don't want to take the fact that things will break and changes do happen that will cause problems. And it's better to embrace
0: it. Absolutely. And it also provides a kind of an objective way to talk about, Failure and unavailability and so on and so forth, which otherwise can get pushed under the carpet. That's it. And wishy washy and oh that wasn't a real problem
1: and stuff. It's like if you've hit the error budget, we've got quantitative measurements of actually being able to do this, which as developers we love. These SLAs and stuff, you know, it typically you'll see like with big services, or maybe you've had an agreement with like a third party, you know, that you'll get an SLA from them, or maybe Amazon with S3 have got certain SLAs with you, etc. But this this SLA is something that you've set to yourself, essentially, isn't it? It's not, I mean, you know, it could be public facing, but typically you can have these in internal applications, etc. and whatnot.
0: Yeah, so they can be applied to, to a wider variety of things. Obviously, the thing that gets the headlines is kind of the externally facing SLAs, particularly uh, when they're breached, right? So mm. uh, that that does tend to, to, uh, to get headlines. But actually, for internal services, there's also a business case for them to have it, particularly if they are infrastructure services. Uh, There's one interesting tidbit in the uh, first SRE book where we talk a little bit about a service which we call Chubby, which is an internal lock service and a naming service and a bunch of other stuff. But basically, loads of things ended up relying on it. And we said, hmm, we're advertising a relatively small SLA for this thing. And yet we're running it so well that it's actually behaving much better And when we look at all of the services that have ended up using it, none of them really expect it to go away as much as we say it should be allowed to go away. So what we'll do is we'll turn it off until it matches its SLA. And then all of the people who were implicitly relying on it to be performing it more than its SLA will get precisely what they deserve.
1: That is amazing that is, so that is kind of the, you know this this idea, like the chaos monkey thing of like allowing failure to happen so as to make sure that people you say don't implicitly rely on things and you know things really happen in, in you know, outside this controlled
0: environment way of doing it, you know you won't get bit yes, and it's also related to a thing called hiram's law h uh, y Hiram Wright, who was a guy who used to work on the c library team in uh, in Google. Uh, who I spoke a fair bit to. Here's a thing called Hiram's Law, which is basically users come to depend on every behavior of your API, no matter what it is. Absolutely. If it's public, it's even if it's not documented, it's still available. Absolutely. And a similar thing kind of applies in the dimension of SLAs as well, which is users come to implicitly depend on the fact that actually you're giving us four nines, whereas you only told us you would do one and a half. And uh, that that kind of Uh, dichotomy between reality and advertisement can be immensely problematic so moving this gauge then you know
1: obviously it allows you to get this error budget and we did touch upon it a little bit but it'd be interesting to maybe you know kind of go into more depth about exactly what then is the error budget and and what we what would a dev use this for
0: so an error budget is consumed when you do things that create errors so in the course of for example a a classic example would be product launches right so if you want to do a product launch and and you have a fair bit of error budget left you don't actually have to do all of the standard best practice things that are common in google i won't say anything about like where it is or how that works elsewhere right but in google it's very common for a, a product launched to be canary launched to some very small po- um, part of the population and then gradually increased over time as you make sure that there are no errors as the product is getting more users and registrations and so on and so forth. And you basically have a sliding scale from nothing to 100% of the world and you check in very regularly. The difficulty with that approach, of course, is that, yes, it ensures reliability, but it's very slow. It could well be that you don't get to see the new product for days or possibly weeks, depending on how many errors you discover in the course of your uh, actual rollout. But if you have a lot of error budget, you can just slam the throttle to 100% and let rip. The nice thing about that, of course, that you get more feedback sooner
1: it's very liberating as yeah. well, just to be able to do this. <laughs>
0: Indeed. Uh, the last good thing about it is that you collect, how can I put this, a lot of feedback quite quickly. Yes. <laughs> um, but that's one classic way. Uh, another way is to perform, well, that's probably the, the the wrong language in that way, but to, to do kind of A-B st- style testing on different code paths that you're exposing in your binary. For example, if you want to test that the users are going to navigate their way around this new UI in a particular way, you can A-B test some proportion of your population. And because you've got a lot of error budget, you can do that with 50% of the population rather than the 0.01% you're otherwise going to have it with and so on.
1: Nice. And it's interesting because with, um, so say like obviously in a big company like Google, who, who monitors and keeps hold of like the error budgets and the SLAs, et cetera, and monitoring those? Is it is it the SREs that are, you know, who it's related to or is it an external team?
0: Oh, yeah. So monitoring is a huge question, of course. And I, I recall you asked that earlier. So um, monitoring in Google in particular, in other places also, uh, is done In basically, I'll say two ways. And the first way is kind of metrics oriented. So a particular binary will export either via push or pull or whatever, a set of metrics which are typically associated with a counter of some kind. So you'll get something like the requests per second, or sorry, the requests I have seen in the trailing 60 seconds are X. And then there is a monitoring system which is responsible for taking these metrics performing aggregations on them typically because uh, usually in the in the google case there is no uh, particular interest in how one binary is performing you care how a fleet or a cluster or some aggregation level is performing and you also care about the aggregated metrics and displays them in some graphical format that's a fairly common thing in the industry there's grafana and there's Uh, lots of stuff that does this kind of thing. Are these all publicly available to other teams or is it just
1: to the team and the developers that are related to that?
0: Yeah, so there's another dimension to metrics or to monitoring as well, which is as well as per team monitoring, there is also a kind of a global monitoring service, which I'll hand wave the details on a bit at the moment. But what that basically means is uh, that certainly within google there is a well-known path to go to to find the metrics from for more or less every team that you can guess the name of so there's a fairly easily guessable name to default monitoring dashboard uh, style mapping that turns out to be fairly obviously convenient there is in the sense of sharing things with the outside world etc that doesn't happen so much the piece of software which resembles Google monitoring the most that has escaped the outside world is Prometheus, uh, which is written by, as it happens, an ex-Googler and uh, a bunch of other folks. In fact, I think there's a bunch of ex-Googlers working on it. That is, that is quite like the system Borgmon that we wrote about in the first SRE book.
1: And I suppose making it public like to, to other teams stuff is it, ownership. And it's kind of like, you know, the fact that you can't just hide the fact, you know, the fact that these are numbers that you're giving and these are the metrics currently. And this is the truth. And then, you you know, you can work around that.
0: Yeah. And one of the nicest things about Google culture in that way is that it is Default open within the company, obviously outside the company, it's a kind of different story, but default open within the company means that a lot of the conversations are about objective data rather than, so tell me what you think happened last night, right? So...
1: And another, you know, you, I think you touched upon it a little earlier, but, you know, this idea of, the, and it's re, this is another brilliant thing about the SRE role is this 50% cap on operations work, providing that, you know, that the SRE should be doing more development or more, you know, writing code, et cetera, then they should be tackling fires and, you know, handling stuff reaction, you know, reactionary. Uh, I'm just wondering maybe you can expand upon that.
0: Yeah, so I guess developing from the earlier point, which is that you have to guarantee some time for the project work in order for the engineering to happen, it's actually not expressed all the time in that way. The way that it's sometimes expressed is that it's a cap on operations work rather than a guarantee of, of project work. And the reason it, we, we do that is because a cap on operations work means that it can't get any worse. Whereas a cap-on project work would mean it couldn't get any better.
1: Yeah, it would be very, very negative to do it the other way, wouldn't it? Yes,
0: indeed. Uh, so the cap-on operations work uh, is also a useful signal to certainly the the ICs on the team and also the management and uh, developer management and so on, that if the SREs find themselves in a position where... Very regularly, they are exceeding that cap or they have to put down tools in the middle of stuff, et cetera, because they are exceeding that cap. What that means is that the product is not operable enough. It's not automated enough. It's something that you have to handhold and shepherd round rather than something which will hum over in a corner by itself. Now, of course, there are nuances and a spectrum of possible response here and so on. But it's a useful trigger that when you don't have Half of your time to make stuff better and you're just reacting or moving stuff around, the product itself needs some more engineering.
1: And I think that's where, you know, typically you'll see people who, you know, have done ops in the past where it is essentially this firefighting, which isn't nice. And, you know, you do always feel very negative on it. But how do you monitor the, the percentage of time? You know, you say you've got a 50% cap. How is that actually tracked and, and kept?
0: So a lot of it is relatively informal today in the sense that informal today in the sense that the the manager will end up scraping a lot of hand provided statistics by staff folks. And usually when something is particularly bad, it is exceptionally and noticeable that it's exceptional in various dimensions. It's when the, the folks themselves really begin to feel the pinch of the, the time in question that kind of triggers the behavior. The reason why it's 50%, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons why it would be 50%, but one particular feature about it being 50% is that you can come in in the morning and if you find yourself not having done all of your operational work by after lunch continually, then that is a signal that you have crossed the threshold.
1: And then also another thing, another thing to add on to this is the fact that developers play a role in this as well, and they have about 5% of operations works, which is completed by them. Uh, what was the idea behind this and, and how does it, how is this executed?
0: Yeah, so that goes back and forth. Um, there's a bit of detail there as well. We have in the past and um, continue to recommend that developers do stay in the on-call rotation for their uh, systems in question because Well, there's a a particular phrase we call the wisdom of production, which is basically a way for production to inform you how your product actually behaves and what your product actually does when it's under stress, which is a very useful signal and can provide you with information, (laughs) much information about how things actually work as opposed to what your mental model of them was
1: you're idealistic how it's going to be compared to what the actual truth is.
0: Yeah. And of course, that doesn't just refer to, oh, I thought my product behaved in way X, but it behaves in way X prime, uh, which is obviously useful and that's fine. But also many of those products, some of those products are infrastructure and other products rely on them as well. And in terms of the stack that's being offered to the rest of the company, if your thing doesn't actually behave as you thought it did, and yet you are going around essentially selling its services to the rest of the company, that is also a a useful thing to know.
1: And it, it kind of grounds the developers to feel that they have some, you know, it's not throwing it over the wall. And just saying like, yeah, operations can deal with that now. I live in my you know, world where I can just keep happily coding away. And yeah, it, it provides the real life. This is what's happening.
0: Absolutely. And the 5% of operations work, which is not on call, uh, which is supposed to be shared as well, also helps to maintain all of that good stuff about parity of esteem. And we're all in this together and we're owning the product as well as you and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of value to be gained from that
1: can assume like, you know, maybe a developer seeing, oh, wow, I'm seeing this error again and again and again. They can sympathize with how an SRE to people doing ops actually feels when they actually, you know, see that code. Yep, Awesome. And another thing, actually, and this adds on again, you know, to this kind of reactionary, but then blameless postmortems is another really key component. Uh, what What is a postmortem in this context? And like, how do you go about doing one?
0: Yeah, so there's a, a huge amount of work out there in the, the industry about this. I don't think uh, we we obviously wrote about it in the book, but we are by no means pioneers in this. The I guess John Allspaw would probably be one of the premier people in the in the postmortem world. Uh, Jessica Devita as well. Uh, I also think of in this context. Um, but basically, postmortem is okay. Something went wrong with the system what are we going to do about it? And it's a an attempt to be an objective record of what happened and also this thing that at the moment is called RCA, which stands for root cause analysis. You're basically trying to figure out what the root cause was for things going wrong. But the language these days is moving a bit more towards contributory factors because actually when you look at sufficiently complicated systems and by the way almost everything that we run in production today on any kind of stack is sufficiently complicated what you tend to see is that there are a bunch of factors that contribute towards the failure of a system and i i think for example um it, like it's not just back end storage system x failed and therefore system y was unable to read its configuration and couldn't actually Start up when it got restarted after an epo like it's stuff like if you remember the the famous hawaii incident where they thought that where they sent out the message that in fact the missiles were coming and everyone was going to die and so on it's like having a, a ui where there's a giant button saying do the wrong thing and then a tiny two by two pixel button saying do the right thing in the bottom of the screen and when you move your mouse towards it it moves away from it and so on Like there are all kinds of UI factors and human factors and so on that can contribute to a system as a whole going wrong. And it's vitally important when you are analyzing why a system goes wrong, not just to take into account kind of relatively narrow causes and so on. You have to pull in a wider perspective in order to have a serious chance of dropping the chance of failure again and in order to have a wider perspective you have to have a blameless approach because if you have a blameful approach which a number of organizations do have you have active incentives to lie
1: and that completely defeats the purpose of a post-mortem and trying to learn from it because i'm guessing is a post-mortem carried out on to any incident that occurs or is there kind of a scale of you know how much time you'll spend on a post-mortem to how severe the problem was
0: uh, there's a lot of nuance there. I think most disciplined SRE teams uh, would say that any incident that crosses the error budget or that causes the error budget to be entirely consumed or more than entirely consumed would say that warrants a post-mortem. And sometimes some SRE teams would say, mm, well, that took about you know a third or a half of our error budget, but we're still not entirely happy about the decision process that led to that outcome so we'd like to investigate it in a bit more detail etc the key thing with postmortems is that they have to be done within a reasonable time after the incident itself occurs otherwise you are typically end up going through you know maybe not great records Mm. people's memories have uh, faded a bit and so on Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And um, because obviously we've mentioned, you know, like, so, you know, exhaust the error budget. What what happens in that case? Uh, like, you know, what, what, what will happen for the developer and also for the SRE?
0: Yep. So there are a variety of things uh, that can happen when the error budget is exhausted. The default thing is that the next set of changes until the error budget refreshes, and usually there's some kind of agreed upon, period at which it refreshes monthly quarterly or whatever usually not weekly when the air budget is is exhausted uh, then you stop you don't stop the service of course
1: you... <laughs> power down it's not going to be in. it's not
0: sufficient we all go home <laughs> no yeah. sorry guys you stop risky change to it. And that means that where you might previously have avoided the canary or staging environment in order to launch your thing, now you do use the canary and staging and launch environment and so on. And you move your time away from implementing business features towards implementing safety features and so on. And sometimes this just applies to the SRE team and sometimes it applies to the development team uh, as well. There's a fair bit of nuance there because... Uh, ultimately, uh, in my opinion, at least, an SRE team and a developer team, product development team, are most effective when they have a fair degree of flexibility about what they'll do and and, and that they'll take each other seriously. So I've, I've worked on teams before where we had a massive blowout and used like two and a half years worth of error budget in a single incident um, and naming no names. And as a result... The developer team said, okay, uh, the fact that this can happen is a fairly serious problem with our product. And so what we will do is we will put chasing product market fit to the side for one moment. In fact, several moments. And we will work on the safety features with you, the SRE team, for a quarter until this thing is done.
1: And that really is reducing that friction, isn't it? And it's aligning your goals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could you see yourself doing anything but SRE now? Obviously, you've done a lot of operations work in the past, development, DevOps work. It really aligns with kind of the way of thinking. And and I'm guessing, you know, you've seen the best results because of using this.
0: Yeah, again, there's a a couple of ways of thinking of it. If you happen to play a board game or board games, you could think of it as keeping a couple of tokens in reserve to spend on like the reliability of your fleet out there in space or whatever. Uh, And that could be a very useful useful hedge. I guess in terms of my own career, today I'm actually director of cloud engineering services and SRE, so I have a foot in both worlds in the sense of uh, product development in the broadest sense uh, and SRE, but I've been uh, what I'll call a, a backroom boy or an infrastructure person or however you want to put that. Like I, I live below the user-facing bit and uh, I'm very comfortable with that because it means I can get all, all dirty in the engine and Look at how things actually really work behind the scenes,
1: and and how have you seen the role of uh, evolve over time? Because as you say, you know the way Google does it is very different to how another company does it. How has how it how has it changed and evolved?
0: Yeah, there's there's a couple of different things going on here. I guess um, the first one is that. The, there is a, a practice in the industry. I've been I've been told this face to face, so it, it's n- it's not just me. I have been told this. There's a practice in the industry of people who have found that the book made operations so exciting for them as a thing that they would do that they renamed their operations team SRE and they changed nothing else about. Them. In in my opinion, that is not SRE, right? That. That mightn't even be SOR, but it's certainly SOR without the E. It's not a principled reaction to, to the set of ideas in the book with respect to how to conduct yourself uh, uh, when you're operating services, et cetera. Now, on the other end of things, there are people who have who have taken it and they do a very principled error budget SLA-driven engineering inside companies like the New York Times or so on. Like smaller, non-traditional, we'll say web companies of one kind or another. And so they're taking those ideas and, and reacting to them and running with them. And some companies uh, do a DevOps model and react to how to do innovative technical stuff within their company in a different way. I think the the bit I specifically see changing about SRE is kind of two things. First of all, as it propagates throughout the industry uh, and and different people or different organizations do it in, in kind of a different way, we will, we will hopefully settle on a common definition of the minimal subset of things that you have to be doing in order to be called an SRE. Because one of the things that's very interesting at the moment is what you call yourself versus what you do. Uh, So I would really like it if the role achieved a kind of a common definition. And I I do see when I go to the various SRE conferences, I do see that the conversation has moved away from questions of identity, more towards questions of, well, what do we actually do on a day-to-day basis and how do we achieve that and so on. And to to my mind, the fact that we're gradually moving away from identity means that we are settling on some common notion of what those things are are. How the role is changing, um, it's deeply influenced by cloud. So up to the point that cloud was a big thing, uh, SRE was, I guess, seen as a highly internal, highly inwardly focused activity that wasn't necessarily, that obviously kept stuff up and running and was in some way an advocate for the user in terms of the availability of the thing and performance of it and so on but wasn't necessarily seen as as something that every company, or at least most companies, would need to engage with in some way. But now that SRE and cloud infrastructure are seen to be coupled together, certainly in the minds of many in the cloud industry, uh, that, that really seems to be something which is pushing it towards mass, if not adoption, then at least engagement. Mm, absolutely. And one of the things the SRE
1: kind of book and also, you know, the role kind of pertains is this idea of, you know, reacting to issues and practicing that. So, you know, failure is going to happen. So let's be the most performant we can with it. Uh, and there's this idea of the concept of the wheel of misfortune. You know, in your time at Google, how did you use this and how did you find it benefited?
0: Yeah. So the underpinning theory there, I guess, is that if you, um, I mean, com- completely outside of the scope of of computing in general, if you just look at the general error rates of tasks performed by humans, you see very, very quickly that if a human being is in a stressful situation, then their error rates go up. And it's from thing no, absolutely, unquestionably true. And it's as simple as thing, it, it ranges from things as simple as misreading the direction that an actual dial is going in, you know, a nuclear power plant or something like that. You will look at it and you will interpret the direction it's going in a different way through to dropping hammers, through to like if you're working with any kind of complicated software as well, particularly one where the UI is do the wrong thing in a massive font and do the right thing in a small font, etc. All of those kinds of approaches lend themselves to error. And one of the ways that you compensate for error is, of course, by drilling yourself to do the right thing multiple times before you have to produce it in the stressful situation. And this is true for, you know, across across a huge range of professions. And so the idea behind this Wheel of Misfortune thing, which is essentially D&D for production engineering, <laughs> right, which, which is there is a, a, a games master and the games master comes up with some imaginary scenario which has gone wrong in production, they come up with the scenario, they say it to you, and then you say stuff like, oh, well, I look at the dashboard for X. Is the graph trending down? And then the games master puts a smug smile on their face and says, actually, no, it's not. And you go, oh, dear, my first guess isn't right, and so on. But the idea is to replay, in many cases, scenarios that have already happened in production into uh, a kind of a fake environment. With practicing and doing this every week, you get accustomed not only to, I guess, the tools that are to hand to investigate the problem. So you keep hearing the names of tools and approaches and so on and so forth when you're partaking in this. But also you get accustomed to the fact that something suddenly will go badly wrong and you will be responsible for it.
1: And that obviously means, you know, the value then in the postmortem and how descriptive that is to be able to carry on to do these. Yep, absolutely. How do you train someone up in, to, to be in the SRE role? I mean, obviously, there must be some characteristics that are beneficial to, you know, for someone to to do this type of role. And, you know, there's an intrigue. Uh, but obviously, you know, different parts of Google, different parts of a company have very different tech stacks and different business domains, etc. How do you kind of how do people kind of yeah train up and move around?
0: Yeah, so there's, there's a, a huge amount of detail to this, um, not all of which I guess would be appropriate for the podcast. In terms of background and training, there are SREs from all kinds of disciplines. I can think of ones from physics, chemistry, statistics, English majors, and a whole bunch of other folks, not just classic computer science and mathematics, although obviously those would predominate. In terms of uh, background, etc., they tend to be folks who are attracted to infrastructure and stuff behind the scenes. Fairly obviously, as opposed to to UI and UX in general. And in terms of personality traits or whatever, I guess folks who are uh, professional pessimists might have some kind problem of, solvers. Yep <laughs> some some kind of bearing upon on what they do. Um, the exercise of thinking well, what if this goes wrong at every single possible step is actually a very interesting mental exercise. And although I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everyone to conduct on everything. <laughs> oh, so you're not in your whole life. <laughs> for your whole life. Uh, it is actually strangely relevant in the domain of computers because what you know, almost everything that can go wrong does go wrong.
1: Especially at scale of you know, these companies that you're working for, for sure. Indeed, we've alluded to it, but you know, you contributed to the great book, the SRE book. You know, how Google runs production systems. I'm just what drew you, you know, to contribute to the book, and and how did you write? How did you find the writing process?
0: Yeah, so I, I guess uh, my own background is I have wrote one book before that book. I have been interested in the topic of education for a long while. I've lectured and and stuff like that. So I'm definitely in the frame of mind where. I I come from a place where sharing and the sharing of knowledge is an inherently good thing. One of the things that initially drove me to instigate this book was a session that I had with other Dublin Google SREs sitting around and saying, you know, there must be a better way to tell people what it is that we do. Because particularly at that stage, I think it was 2012, even or thereabouts, most of the conversations when you're hiring is hello, would you like to be an SRE? What's that? More or less the second sentence in 99% of recruiting conversations. Now, after a while, that gets to be a bit of a drag. But also, in terms of sharing knowledge, there's a tremendous amount of practices that were happening inside the company, which obviously had been, uh, in some cases, influenced by things that were outside of the company, and sometimes less so, perhaps. And I felt that it would be doing the industry a good service if we managed to document some of the interesting ideas we had come up with and would also help to educate the industry about what this job role was and would also help to, I guess, increase the credibility of what uh, the company was then doing in the, in the cloud space as well. So it kind of served a whole bunch of different functions, but mostly from my point of view, it was about authentically describing our lived experience in a kind of a weird hybrid role, which was fascinating and at the cutting edge of something. Don't quite know if it's life or computer science or whatever, but we were doing things which I, I felt very strongly should be communicated to the outside world.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it is a truly like invaluable book. Since its release, how have you found like the discussion and understanding of the role then has changed? You, have you found that the book has definitely aided the discussion?
0: Uh, it has. Um, at that stage, uh, before I left Google, had kept some metrics about the rates uh, at which incoming candidates would say they understood the role prior to talking to the recruiter and post talking to the recruiter and so on. So there was a noticeable uptick in that. There was a noticeable uptick across publicly accessible domains like Twitter or whatever, sentiment analysis about the role and so on. As far as Google could tell, it made a very significant difference.
1: And I noticed actually you've recently moved to Microsoft, I think we alluded to that like, as well. And like so your new role, you mentioned the title, like what does it encompass for you then and you know, what does the future hold for you then?
0: Yeah, so um there's a, a couple of things going on. Um, I guess in the in the Microsoft context, I'm attempting to bring some of my hard won experience, et cetera, to how Microsoft does SRE, because it turns out Microsoft does SRE. And I'm doing that specifically in the context of Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud, as you know, uh, that is a huge, huge opportunity. Obviously, the cloud business as a whole is, is a huge opportunity. Microsoft, uh, as a as a company, with its customer focus and its enterprise leanings and so on, there's just a huge amount of very interesting, both technical and organizational engineering work to do there. I'm doing that in Dublin rather than Redmond because I live in Dublin and I live in Ireland and because I'm essentially starting off the first, as far as I know, uh, large other SRE site that will do the kind of follow the sun support model that I'm so familiar with from Google's uh, institutional uh, capacities.
1: That it sounds very, very exciting. Uh, it is
0: uh, the opportunity of a lifetime and that's why I'm here
1: absolutely i say thank you no thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show it's been really interesting and you know i'm, I'm sure the audience are going to love it and i definitely to you know discussing all these things
0: no worries at all
1: awesome well audience it's been another great episode and we'll speak
0: to you again next week goodbye you've been listening to three devs and a maybe you can contact us at contact at three devs and a maybe dot com. Or follow us on Twitter at the number three, devs and a maybe.